We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning, Emmaus. Uh, my name is Tyler. I am one of the, the pastors here at the church. And um, I just want to start off by acknowledging the obvious. It's Mother's Day today. And I think that means that there are two things worth saying. Uh, the first thing is that not everybody experiences today the same way. Uh, for some of us, uh, today is, is a painful reminder of something. And so if you come into this place hurting and with a heavy heart, uh, we, want to know, we want you to know that uh, we grieve with you. Uh, more importantly, we want you to know that Jesus sees you, he cares for you, and he loves you. Uh, the second thing that I want to say is happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Um, you guys are a blessing. You're a gift and encouragement. Yeah, let's clap for the moms. That's great. Amen. Absolutely. You guys are a blessing. You're a gift. You're an encouragement. Thank you for all your hard work, for your investment in your children, and uh, we just want to celebrate you today and say thanks. Uh, before we go on, though, I think it's, uh, it's, it's appropriate for us to pray and to go before the Lord and thank God for our moms, but also uh, to bring before him uh, what's been going on with the Supreme Court this week, the developments that have happened over the past week. Uh, we want to ask the Lord to establish justice in our land and to make our governing officials wise to protect unborn life, which we believe is sacred. So let's go before the Lord. Let's bring that to him. Lord God, we thank you for the love of mother, that through our moms, you bring us into this world. You give us life. And through our moms, we experience your nurturing love in a special way. That's a gift. And for those who didn't have that experience, who don't know that gift, we pray for your comfort. And that we ask that in the kindness of your presence, you would meet them in their pain today. We also pray for Roe to be overturned. Lord, you are the giver of life. Before we are born into this world, you see our unformed substance. You knit us together in the womb. And amazingly, your own son inhabited a mother's womb. And so in light of that, we ask that truth and justice would prevail in our nation. We, add that, we ask that the, the shedding of innocent blood would cease. And we pray, Lord, that abortion would be seen for what it truly is, an egregious evil in your sight. For you are the God who loves righteousness and who hates wickedness. And so we long for you to establish righteousness in our time, in this generation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are picking up our series in the book of Acts this morning in chapter 11. So if you would turn with me there, Acts chapter 11. We're continuing to journey with the early church. We're walking with them as the gospel is crossing all sorts of ethnic and cultural barriers. Last week we looked at one of the most pivotal events in the New Testament. 
We saw how the first group of Gentiles was brought into the community of faith. It happened that Peter received a vision from the Lord, and in that vision, he is told to go to Caesarea and meet Cornelius. So Peter goes. He meets Cornelius in Caesarea, and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and to all his household. And as, as Peter is preaching, as he's giving his message, right there in the middle of the sermon, the Holy Spirit is poured out in power from on high. And we need to remember just why this is such a big deal. Because prior to chapter 10, the church had been made up pretty much entirely of Jewish believers. But all of a sudden, the barrier between Jew and Gentile is effectively broken down because it's clear that the Gentiles have experienced their own Pentecost. And this changes things. It changes things not only for the church as a whole, it changes things not only for the Gentiles, but it also changes things for Peter on a personal level. Pastor Josh was wise to point out last week that Peter experiences his own transformation here. This comes out in verse 47 of chapter 10. He says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now that, of course, is a rhetorical question. The answer to it is no. Water baptism cannot be withheld from the Gentiles because spirit baptism has not been withheld from the Gentiles. And as this realization lands on Peter, he begins to treat these Gentiles as his brothers and sisters in Christ. The text tells us that he stays with Cornelius. He eats with Cornelius and his family and his household. He, he fellowships with these uncircumcised people. In Christ, he learns to treat them as equals for the first time. And with this... The categories of who gets included in the kingdom of God are redefined. The boundaries are redrawn because through Jesus, those who were once outsiders now receive the fullness of God's blessing. They become fellow heirs in the kingdom. They're not on the JV team. They're not second-class citizens. No, they have become full participants in what God is doing in the world. And so as we turn here to Chapter 11, we're going to see the after effects of this, of what happened in chapter 10. We're going to see what happens in the wake of this Gentile Pentecost. And with these things, Luke is driving home a truth that's crucially important for us. It's, it's crucial for our own understanding of the gospel. And here it is. Here's what I want you to see as we look at Acts chapter 11. That the Holy Spirit expands the reign of grace by overcoming the barriers that divide us. The Holy Spirit expands the reign of grace by overcoming the barriers that divide us. Of course, the Holy Spirit does not need our permission to do this. Whenever he wants, however he wants, among whoever he wants, he can overcome, he can break through any cultural barrier for the purpose of advancing God's kingdom. He is sovereign to do that. And we as the church, all we can do 
is recognize it and by faith join what the Spirit is already about doing. In chapter 11, we see this happening in two different settings. The first setting is Jerusalem. The second setting is Antioch. And as we'll see in both settings, though the circumstances are very different, the basic idea is the same because in each case, God's people are forced to realize that wherever they go, the Holy Spirit has already gone ahead of them. He goes before them. He is already at work before they even figure out what's going on. So let's look at the church in Jerusalem together. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So, here in Jerusalem, the church must recognize that God has given grace without distinction. That's the first point of my sermon. Grace without distinction. And grace without distinction, as we see here, has a way of humbling us. It has a way of confronting our assumptions. Notice how this happens in the text. Word about Cornelius and his household has gotten out. It has reached the saints in Jerusalem, and some of them are clearly not comfortable with what they've heard. They're not okay with it. That would be the circumcision party. 
The circumcision party was comprised of Jewish believers who were zealously committed to the law. And so they have serious concerns about certain types of social interaction between Jews who are ceremonially clean, who are circumcised, and non-Jews who are unclean, uncircumcised. So the moment Peter shows up in Jerusalem, the circumcision party begins to criticize they begin to chip away at and doubt his credibility. Peter, who do you think you are eating with the Gentiles, eating with uncircumcised men? We don't do that. You know this. You know better. And their reaction clues us into just how big a deal this was. And I mean, we see this as well in Peter's own testimony, right? He, he receives a vision of the animals, and he's told Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And how does Peter respond? No way, Lord. No way. Those animals are unclean. I know that. That's a boundary I simply will not cross. And it takes actually quite a bit of convincing to get Peter to accept what the Lord is saying here. His arm has to be twisted. He, Jesus and Peter, they go back and forth like this about three times, it says. So while it would be easy for us to roll our eyes at the circumcision party, while it would be easy for us to sneer at them for being out of touch with what's going on, let's not be too quick to do that. Let's not be too hasty here. Peter certainly wasn't. He recognized that we all have this tendency we all have the tendency to place limitations on what God's grace will and will not do. We have this way of adopting standards that prop us up in our self-righteousness. And we apply those standards to everyone else. Peter knew this. He knew that it was his own tendency and he knew that it was the tendency of others. And so instead of arguing with them, instead of getting down into the mud of theological controversy, Peter simply says, okay, listen, how about I just tell you the story of what happened and you can judge for yourselves. And Luke tells us that when they heard what Peter had to say, and they listened to his story, the mood in the room changed dramatically. The power of God had come down and stunned them into silence. They have no objection. In verse 18, they admit that regardless of whatever scruples they have, God has indeed given grace without distinction. In Christ and by the Spirit, repentance that leads to life has been granted to Gentile as well as to Jew. And as we look at this, as we kind of think through what's going on here, I wonder, do you see yourself in this text at all? I mean, I, I see myself here. I wonder if you do as well, because as I've thought through this text, and as I've considered its implications for my own life, it has, it has forced me to ask myself, could it be that I'm more like the circumcision party than I care to admit? Could it be that I am just like them because like them, I can be slow to understand and quick to criticize? 
And based on what's out there on social media, I'd say I'm not the only one with this problem. I'm not alone in that. No, this is widespread. It's endemic. So much of our conversation with other Christians and so much of our conversation about other Christians is shot through with fault-finding, with cynical commentary, with knee-jerk speculation about brothers and sisters in Christ who, are, who have been purchased with his costly blood. We claim to be people of grace. We sing about grace. We talk about grace. We preach about grace. We're all about grace. But so much of the chatter inside of the church is exactly just as graceless as the chatter outside the church. And what does that say about us? What does it say about the state of our hearts? What does it reveal that our default posture is so often one of criticism? Now, don't mishear me as I ask that question. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there is not a time for rebuke. I'm not saying that there's not a time where disagreement is appropriate. Those things can be worthwhile and good. And I'm not saying that we should shy away from confronting false teachers. That needs to happen sometimes. But the fact that it needs to happen in certain cases is not a license to make it a way of life. It's not an excuse to see everything as a nail because you happen to be holding a hammer. Because people who delight in grace without distinction do not feel a compulsive need to dunk on others. That's beneath us, friends. It's unworthy of the gospel of grace that we profess to believe. And, and if we look closely at what's happening here in Acts chapter 11, we see that the only corrective for this problem is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What this hypercritical generation most needs is fresh power from on high. We need the glory of the living God to come down and to shake us out of our preoccupation with being right all the time. We need to see that a church arrested by the grace of God is so much more attractive than a church that has an axe to grind. And you can always tell which is which. You can always tell them apart because a church arrested by grace is humble. It's humble. Its culture is one of humility. It isn't harsh and demeaning. It's not constantly looking for an argument. No, it's life-giving. When you walk into a church like that, it is a breath of fresh air. It puts wind in your sails because in a church that is arrested by grace, people are treated like human beings. They're seen for what they truly are, precious souls, dearly loved in the eyes of their creator and redeemer. Friends, the church should be the most humane place in the world. It should be a place where joy in Christ is palpable, where encouragement abounds, where generosity expresses the very heart of the gospel. And how does this happen? How do we become that kind of church? By the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. By relying on Him. By depending upon Him and walking in Him. 
Because when he shows up and defines everything in terms of grace without distinction, it creates a culture that is strikingly humble and gloriously humane. Looking back at the text, we actually see this playing out in a profound way. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, let's pause there. So in Jerusalem, we saw grace without distinction. We saw how it has a humbling effect on us. And now we are traveling with Barnabas as he goes north to Antioch. And it's there that we will see grace on full display. That's the second point. Grace on full display. Believers from Jerusalem begin to scatter abroad. And as they went, they preached the gospel. And Luke points out here that as they preached, they primarily targeted the Jewish community. And this is what they did in Antioch as well. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, it says in verse 20, who got this crazy idea in their heads. They thought, okay, we're here in Antioch. This is a pretty like culturally diverse place. There are a lot of non-Jews here. What if we were to preach the gospel to some of them? And so these believers, they reach out to the Hellenists. And it says that they preached Christ to the Hellenists and that a great many of them were added to the church. Now, now think about this for a second. Think about how far the book of Acts has come. Let's trace this. Back in chapter 2, we saw the gospel creating a community among Jewish believers in Jerusalem. That's how the book starts. Then... If you fast forward to chapter 10, you have the gospel creating a community in Caesarea. That's Cornelius and his household. These are people who are culturally Roman through and through. And now, here in chapter 11, you have Hellenists, people who had embraced Greek culture, and they're believing in Jesus. So the gospel is spreading across some pretty significant cultural boundaries. Jews. Romans, Greeks, these are all believing in one Lord, one gospel, one Messiah. And, and the thing that makes the church in Antioch so interesting and so unique is that it is actually the first multicultural community. It's the first church made up of both Jews and Greeks. 
So for the first time, we see people who formerly had nothing to do with each other, they're now coming together in Christ. This is something that will be brought out more when we get to chapter 13 in Acts. But for now, it's enough to say that this was a church where not everyone looked like one another, thought like one another, and talked like one another. They came from different backgrounds, and yet here they are, living as one community under the lordship of Jesus. And this caught the attention of the church in Jerusalem. Once again, word reaches them. Something is happening up north in Antioch. Something is going on, and they think maybe we should send someone to check it out. So up goes Barnabas. And it says in verse 23 that when he landed there in Antioch, when he experienced what God was doing, it says he saw the grace of God. With his own two eyes, he saw the grace of God. It's like a world of living color was opening up before Barnabas. God was showing off his grace in all its manifold glory. Something special was happening. And Barnabas, being the son of encouragement, is happy to recognize this. It says that when he got there and he saw the grace of God in Antioch, he was glad. He rejoiced. Friends, I don't know about you, but I find this really compelling. I find it compelling because it challenges us to go against what we were just talking about, the hypercritical current that is so prevalent in our culture. It challenges us to go against that and instead to be on the lookout for the grace of God, to gladly recognize his grace at work wherever we find it. So let me ask you, when when was the last time you went to a brother or sister in Christ and said something like this to them? Listen, I've been observing you, and I want to tell you that I see evidences of God's grace in your life. I see it here, I see it here, and I see it here. And I just want to bring that to your attention and to celebrate that with you. When was the last time you said something like that to somebody? Saying that, it's such a simple thing, and yet it can have such a profound impact. Because here's the thing, we can't always see what God's grace is doing in us. It can be hard to measure that sometimes. It can be hard to see that sometimes. And so what do we need? We need a wise brother or sister in Christ to come to us and point it out to us so that we can see that. And not only to point it out, but also to celebrate with us. And also to encourage us. We need to encourage one another to continue in the grace of God, to keep plodding forward. That's what Barnabas does here. He exhorts the church in Antioch to remain steadfast. He encourages them to remain faithful, to not waver from the purpose that they had received in the Lord. And Barnabas not only recognizes that the church in Antioch needs this, he recognizes that he himself needs it. He needs help and support as he ministers to the church. So what does he do? He brings in Saul. He goes to Tarsus. He retrieves Saul. And together, it says in verse 26, they continue to encourage and instruct the church for an entire year. And the last few verses of chapter 11 show us that their ministry of encouragement and instruction was not in vain. Let's look back at the text. 
We'll start in verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So a famine is coming. At the very least, this means food shortages. It's ominous news. And yet, think about it. Look at what's happening. God's grace is actually doing something remarkable, even in the midst of a terrible situation. The chapter began one way, and it ends in a reversal. At the start of chapter 11, you had the circumcision party in Jerusalem sharply criticizing Peter. They were bent out of shape because Peter went to the Gentiles and ate with them. But here at the end of chapter 11, you have this church in Antioch, a church largely made up of Gentile Christians sending relief to Jerusalem. So do you see the reversal there? Do you see the significance of that? The very people who could not stomach a Jew eating with Gentiles are now receiving aid from Gentiles so that Jewish Christians could fill their stomachs. The church in Jerusalem will have food to eat because of their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. They're in Antioch. We need to keep something in mind here. Pastor Josh reminded us last week, and I think it's really important for us to, to know this and to, to remember this, that what's happening here isn't really about food. All the dietary codes and whatnot, that, that's not really the main thing. No, it's just an occasion. Food is just the occasion that demonstrates what's really going on. It's to demonstrate that God's grace is overcoming the barriers that divide people so that he can build his church, so that he can make for himself a chosen people, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, one body, one building, one bride that is comprised of people from different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities. That's what grace does, friends. It does what no form of social engineering can. It does what no political endeavor can. It brings people together around a common identity, around a common purpose, because it brings them to faith in a common Savior. This is what the New Testament teaches over and over. Titus chapter 3, we once hated each other, it says. We had nothing but contempt for people who were unlike us, and yet the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared. Why? In order to save us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but instead according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, so that being justified by His grace, we together as one might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that this is what tears down the dividing wall of hostility between people. It takes people from all walks of life who have no earthly reason to get along and it makes them one. 
Through the blood of Jesus, we are brought together into the presence of God. Through him, we have access in one spirit to one father in the household of God. This is what grace does. It overcomes the barriers that divide us. It does away with our man-made hierarchies. It topples our religious games. It tears down the things that make us think that we have a leg up on others. And it makes the ground beneath our feet completely level so that every last one of us comes to the table on the basis of one thing and one thing only, our standing in Christ. So as we remember this together, I want to leave you with one simple charge. I want to exhort us all, you, me, every one of us, to live like the grace of God is all we have because it is. His grace is all you have. His grace is all that I have. It is the only thing that brings our sorry selves here today. It pardons us from a lifetime of sinning. And it's the only thing that can empower us to go from this place in order that we can live as children of light in a culture where darkness reigns. The hard truth is that we live in a culture where it's normal for people to be ugly toward one another. Pessimism, hostility, bitterness, these things are in the very air that we breathe. And it's why most people, I think, live on a starvation diet of true encouragement. It's part of the reason why the mental health issues are the defining crisis of our time. Because the world is a bleak and hopeless place in the eyes of so many. It's lonely. And we look at what's happening all around us and we wonder, is there any way that it can get any better than this? How on earth are we all going to get along? So many of us, we, we can't stand each other. There's so much polarization. There's so much backbiting and harshness out there. And yet, we come to Acts chapter 11. And a passage like this shows us that we, as the church, have everything we need to show the world a different way. God has given us his Holy Spirit for this purpose. To provide us with every resource we need so that in the face of the world's ugliness, we can show forth the stunning beauty of God's grace. We're not just tolerating each other here. We're not just being civil toward one another through a forced grin, as if that's all that we can muster. No, we're, we're truly loving each other from the depths of a regenerate heart. We're treating one another as family. We're, we're looking out for each other, caring for each other in times of need. We have each other's back. We encourage one another to keep going, to remain steadfast. Friends, that's how we show that the grace of God has come to town. And because of the fact that every last one of us is a sinner saved by that grace and that grace alone, we get to go out of here and we get to tell people that anyone can get in on this. You don't have to be a certain kind of person to join what God is doing in the world. No, all you need is the empty hands of faith. To come to Jesus recognizing in your heart of hearts that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ alone is that Savior and there is no other name in heaven and on earth by which man can be saved. 
He is pouring out His Spirit here and now to reveal that to us, to reveal the reign of His grace so that whatever barrier has kept us apart, whatever issues have divided us, those can be done away with. So I pray that this morning as we come to the Lord's table, as we do every week, that we will see the grace of God and be glad. One of the great things about the Lord's Supper is that we can actually see the gospel. We can see the grace of God in the gospel because when we, when we take the bread, we see God's grace and the body of Jesus being broken for us. And when we take the cup, we actually see God's grace and the blood of Jesus being poured out for the remission of sins. Which means if God's grace isn't the thing that's defining your life, meaning if you're not a Christian, we would kindly ask you, please do not come. Please do not come to the table. Instead of coming, we invite you, we plead with you to come to Jesus. By faith, put your life under the reign of his grace. You can do that by turning away from your sin, by turning toward him in trust. For those of us who have done that, who are living by the grace of God, we want to ask you to come to see his grace at the table and to be glad. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll do that. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that your grace has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that your grace is coming to us now through the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. God, I, I ask that just like Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, that you would make Emmaus Church a congregation that is full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That just as the grace of God was seen in Antioch, that his grace would be seen here. Just as it made Barnabas glad, let it make us glad to see your grace in our midst, in the lives of others. And let us be quick to point it out. God, I pray against a spirit of harshness. I pray against a spirit of hypercriticism. And I pray that Emmaus would be a humane place, an oasis of humaneness in our city. Lord, thank you for these precious people. Thank you that we get to come to the table together. And I pray that as we come, we would see your grace and that it truly would make us glad. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our King, whose reign of grace has come and is here now. We pray in his name.